Thanks for listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we always bring you the deeper discussion about the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, and I'm happy to say that once again, my day is immeasurably brightened by the return of America's favorite co-host, Jeff Simmons. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing fine, Celeste. It's great to be back with you. I had a nice, relaxing time in California for a week and a half. I had a few In-N-Out burgers. I'm ready to go today. Awesome. Glad to hear it. So lots and lots going on in the news. We have talked about Congressman George Santos on this program, and we just heard today that he is, in fact, not running for re-election. Scathing new House Ethics Committee report found evidence that the Long Island representative defrauded donors, filed incomplete or fake financial reports, and used campaign funds to line his own pockets, Jeff. It's, it's just been amazing. And of course, now he says, yeah, he's not going to be seeking re-election. And we'll tell you, our listeners, a little about how we're going to be discussing him on an upcoming show later on in this show. But of course, there is so much more going on in New York City as well. Mayor Adams and his team. Well, we should really do a whole separate show on this story. It is about the investigation into his campaign. There's questions about foreign influence and campaign finance. Now, we have asked the mayor to come back on WBAI, and we will ask him to come on again. Now that the FBI has reportedly given him back his cell phones, he'd be able to call into our show. Lots of speculation swirling around what this could mean for the mayor and his political future. Vanity Fair even has a piece out now raising the question of whether this could open the door to other mayoral candidates, including, get this, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who, as you know, resigned amid a sexual harassment scandal two years ago. But for today, we're going to stay with a topic related to what we discussed here on Driving Forces last week and which remains on the minds of New Yorkers and the world. That, of course, is the escalating conflict in the Middle East. Passions are very high on this, including here at WBAI Free Speech Radio. And we're glad to be able to bring you a variety of different viewpoints on this station, not just one. So last time we started a conversation about anti-Semitism and we looked at how vitriol and violence against Jewish people fits into a broader discussion of Israel and Palestine. Before we get started, I want to reiterate a couple of points I made on that program. I'm not talking about peaceful protests in favor of Palestine or Israel, not talking about the people of Gaza, civilians, innocent people who are affected by what's going on. And I'm not talking about limiting protected speech that is critical of the Israeli government. But what we want to talk about with our first guest, it's something he's been working on for a very long time because it has been a problem here in the, in the United States and across the world for a very long time. That is the problem of people saying bigoted things about Jewish people just because they are Jews. Now, that that is different than other kinds of speech. We're talking about hate speech. There's a big difference between someone saying free Palestine and someone who is saying Hitler should have finished the job. And unfortunately, lately, we have heard and seen both. And we know that this country needs to confront and condemn Islamophobia. That is un questionable. But if you've been watching the news recently, there have been a number of extremely disturbing incidents involving the targeting of Jewish people, from demonstrators to students to people putting up posters of Israelis taken hostage by Hamas. Jewish people and their allies are concerned, and that is our focus today. 
You're listening to Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, you've heard a lot here on the station about big demonstrations in New York and elsewhere in support of Palestine. This week, of course, also included a major rally in Washington, D.C., the March for Israel. The speakers at this rally included New York's own Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader of the House. Now, here's just a snippet of what he had to say. We stand together with the Jewish community in Israel. We stand together with the Jewish community in America. We stand together with the Jewish community all throughout the world. We stand together in the effort to crush anti-Semitism. We stand together in the effort to crush anti-Jewish hate. We stand together in the effort to bring home the hostages. We stand together in the effort to make sure that America will always be a safe space for the Jewish community in every single zip code. God bless the hostages. God bless Israel. God bless the United States of America. So joining us now to talk more about what's going on right now is Matthew Berger. As executive director of the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism, Matt led the development and launch of the Can Lion award-winning Stand Up to Jewish Hate campaign. That's a $25 million advertising campaign to educate people about modern anti-Semitism and empower them to address hate. Before that, Matt was Hillel International's vice president for external affairs and campus preparedness, and he worked for a Middle East think tank. And not to date myself, but back when we first met, he was covering the 2008 presidential campaign for NBC News. Matt Berger, thank you so much for joining us here today on WBAI. Thanks for having me. So to start, we just mentioned you were a big part in creating the Stand Up to Jewish Hate campaign. Just tell us a little bit more about how it got started, what it is, and how it works. So the campaign was launched uh, a year ago. And it was part of an effort from Robert Kraft, the uh, owner of the New England Patriots, who started the Foundation of Combat Anti-Semitism in 2019, really focused on raising awareness about anti-Semitism for people outside the Jewish community. The Jews make up only 2% of the U.S. population, yet we are the victims of 55% of religious-based hate crimes, and that number is growing now after October 7th. But more than half of Americans don't think that anti-Semitism is a problem in this country. So we recognize that there's an awareness issue, that we need to make sure people outside the Jewish community understand that anti-Semitism is an issue and that the tools to solve anti-Semitism are the same tools that many people already know to fight racism, gender inequality, and hate against separate groups. We really wanted to raise the decibel level so people saw anti-Semitism as part of the fight against other hate. Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on the show today. You know, yesterday I was at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in their uh, exhibition, their main exhibition, The Holocaust, What Hate Can Do. And it really tracks the evolution of anti-Semitism globally through, through centuries. And so this has been called the oldest form of hate. So what should give us hope that in this day and age that we can combat it? I think what gives us hope is that we've seen our country take steps to fight other hate when people come together and say it's enough. We've seen changes in how 
we engage with um, the LGBTQ community, certain words and terms that um, people used on the playground and in the streets, uh, derogatory towards the LGBTQ community, people stood up and recognized that that's no longer acceptable and the language changed. We see the same thing with how people talk about um, the black community and the Asian community. We need to raise awareness about anti-Semitism and who the Jewish community is in 2023. And when we do that and we explain the problems with anti-Semitic tropes and language that is uh, discriminatory against the Jewish community, I believe that we can really make a change in how we uh, talk about these issues and, and draw more people into the conversation to be allies in the fight against anti-Semitism. And Matt Berger, we've talked a little bit about how this has already won an awards, drawn a lot of attention. Take us a little bit into how the campaign actually looks. What what kinds of specific things are you asking people to do or think about uh, or share with other people? Yep. So we developed the blue square and used the blue square emoji that's already on people's phones. And we want to make that the national symbol for fighting anti-Semitism and to stand up to Jewish hate. So we really liken it to the rainbow flag. When you see a rainbow flag, whether it's on a storefront or someone's put it on their social media feed or you see a flag um, you know, on, on a flagpole, you know that that person or that organization or that community cares about LGBTQ uh, rights. We want to do the same thing with the blue square. We want people to use that as a symbol to show that they care about the rise in anti-Semitism, that they're committed to fighting anti-Semitism and standing up against Jewish hate. And so we're really looking to encourage people to be part of this network, part of the work to fight anti-Semitism. And we developed the Blue Square campaign and launched it with an advertising campaign that really raised awareness about what anti-Semitism looks like today, how prevalent it is in our communities. And also, all of our ads are focused on showing somebody who is not Jewish, who sees anti-Semitism and takes action. We really want to empower people who are not Jewish, who are outside the Jewish community, to understand that they have a role to play in the fight against Jewish hate. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Matt, because I just uh, recently interviewed a woman uh, who had taken the step of putting something like 1,500 small Israeli flags uh, on her property because she wanted people to see this. She wanted people to think about it. And part of the reason why she told me she felt she needed to make an extremely uh, bold statement was that she felt very isolated in supporting Israel. She said to me, you know, when a lot of causes have come up, like, uh, Black Lives Matter or different causes. You know, you saw people putting signs, uh, women's rights, um, you know, the, uh, the issue over abortions rights. You saw people putting stickers on their cars, putting signs on their lawns, you know, really being out there sort of offering their, their support for these causes. And she did not feel that way, um, about Israel or the fight against anti-Semitism. Is this something that you've been hearing that people are feeling sort of isolated at this time for, for being either, uh, you know, for sort of being proudly Jewish? It's a major reason why we launched the campaign the way we did. For generations, the Jewish community, community in the United States has really been focused on assimilating, focused on not raising this issue uh, at a loud decibel for fear that it would not be seen as important enough when compared to other civil rights fights. 
And so we've gotten into an environment where many Jews don't feel comfortable really talking about anti-Semitism. And certainly there's been a construct in which uh, the Jewish community is perceived as white, perceived as privileged, and not seen as needing protection or not needing the support of others to address hate against its community. And that's why our campaign is really focused on raising awareness about the fact that anti-Semitism is a growing problem, that as only 2.4% of the U.S. population, we can't address anti-Semitism on our own, and that we need the support of all uh, Americans to really stand up and help us address this growing problem. You're listening to Driving Forces with Celeste Katz, Marston and Jeff Simmons on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live everywhere at WBAI.org. Our guest right now is Matthew Berger. He's one of the driving forces behind the Stand Up to Jewish Hate campaign to combat anti-Semitism. And Matt, this is something that we brought up on a program I did last week here. And I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this because this seems like this is sort of a, a subject for debate among a lot of people in the media people who are involved in activism. Um, you know, we're trying to figure out a difference, if there is one, between criticism of Israel as a state or as a government and anti-Semitism. Obviously, Israel is a Jewish state, and so there is some sort of crossover here that people feel that if somebody is critical of the Israeli government or the Israeli military or Israeli foreign policy, is that the same thing as being anti-Semitic, you know, can you talk a little bit about how, how this sort of shakes out for you? It's absolutely legitimate to criticize Israeli governmental policy or the actions that Israel is taking. The same way it's completely legitimate as American citizens to speak out against actions that we don't like or policies that we don't like in the United States. And frankly, a lot of Jews don't uh, agree with every policy that Israel is taking. And you've seen over the past year really dynamic uh, demonstrations, both in the United States and in Israel, by Jews against those policies. When anti-Israel commentary devolves into anti-Semitism, it's when Jews are seen as being responsible for the actions of the Israeli government. So when... Um, problems or concerns about action that Israel is taking devolves into attacks on American Jews, or all Jews are held responsible for the actions of the Israeli government, that's inherently anti-Semitic. We wouldn't attack a Russian American and blame him for the actions that we don't like in the Putin government. But it's becoming uh, more and more uh, legitimate to attack American Jews, sometimes actually physically, because you disagree with the actions of the Israeli government. And that's when it's anti-Semitic. So, Matt, last week, uh, Celeste had spoken with the creators of the Kidnap from Israel poster campaign about the posters that we're seeing a lot of video about where they're being torn down as a quote-unquote protest. What are your thoughts on this pro on these actions, on these protests, when people are tearing down these posters? It's incredibly distressing because you are essentially saying that these innocent Israeli citizens don't have a right to exist, don't have a right to be free. And you're taking out, again, your frustrations or your disagreement with Israeli policy on innocent civilians. And the idea that you are siding with a Hamas terrorist 
who are taking actions and, and killing and raping and torturing and holding hostage um, innocent civilians uh, in Israel. The fact that you are that's the side you're taking is is really distressing. Certainly, again, you can have legitimate criticism of Israeli governmental actions. But when we can't agree that kidnapping innocent civilians is a problem, that's when this conversation really devolves. So on that note, Matt, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about the idea. I mean, you know, somebody who uh, has been, uh, you know, pivotal in creating a stand up to Jewish hate um campaign and encouraging people, including mostly, in fact, people who are not uh, of the Jewish faith or of not of, of not of Jewish background to stand up to this sort of thing. What would you recommend? Is there sort of a guideline, say, uh, you know, somebody's walking down the street and they see somebody cutting up these posters or tearing down these posters? Like, is it appropriate to say something? Is it appropriate to intervene or report that to somebody? Or are you talking about a different approach to standing up to anti-Semitism? We really want people to be good citizens and to act the way that they would act if you saw somebody taking, you know, doing something that you see as uh, disrespecting uh, any other community in this country. Many of us, when facing that kind of intolerance or bigotry, would speak up for other people. We would take action. We'd either address it ourselves or we'd uh, alert the authorities or do whatever we think is appropriate to stop hatred, to stop bigotry, or to stop something that we felt was inappropriate. We want people to be good citizens. Again, all of our ads are focused on people who are not Jewish, who see anti-Semitic activity and take action. They do something, they say something that sometimes directly addresses the problem, sometimes shows support for the person in in the Jewish community who's being affected by what's happening. So we really are calling on people to do the right thing, to be part of this fight, to stand with us, in addressing anti-Semitism. The easiest way to do that is to post and share the blue square on your social media to say that this is something that you care about, whether you're Jewish or you have people in your life, friends, family who are Jewish, or you feel a connection to the Jewish community. We want people to spread the word that that we all have a role to play in the fight against anti-Semitism. And, you know, on that note, we have seen people being called out uh, very strongly in some cases for anti-Semitic activities or activities that are perceived as anti-Semitic. We've seen these display trucks, uh, LED trucks driving around college campuses, calling people, you know, X or Y or Z colleges leading anti-Semites. You've probably seen this stop anti-Semitism Twitter feed, which posts videos uh, of people, sometimes in confrontational situations, tearing down posters or engaging in some other activities and, you know, sort of effectively doxing them, really. I, I can't think of another, I don't know if it's exposing them or doxing them is the appropriate way to describe that. Now, some people would say, look, these people are out there engaging in hateful activities. They're employed, you know, maybe as uh, healthcare workers or teachers or something like that. People have a right to know that these people are are acting like this or saying these things. On the other hand, some people would say, of course, that would have a chilling effect on free speech, that it's sort of uh, piling on or it's intimidating people. Just curious to know where you fall on on things like that. We really believe that the best approach is to build a community of support for the Jewish community, to engage those people who either don't 
uh, understand what anti-Semitism is or are, aren't predisposed to already feel one way or another about the issue. We believe that if we can galvanize people, all Americans, to join us in the fight against anti-Semitism, that we'll be able to really impact change. So we're really focused on positive ways to bring people together, to bring people into the community to help us in the fight against anti-Semitism. You know, Matt, earlier, uh, you know, Celeste had mentioned that you two had met during the 2008 presidential campaign. You've been a reporter for a number of years. Uh, you spent ma many years as a reporter. So drawing on that experience, what's your sense of how seriously and accurately media in this country are covering issues of anti-Semitism? I would say I'm pleasantly surprised that anti-Semitism is getting more attention than it did pre-October 7th. And I'm seeing a, a large number of, of journalists really take a look at this issue, see that this is a front. Well, we still have you there, Matt, or are we going to have to get you back? Uh, I think we may have to get uh, Matthew Berger back on the line. If you want to just give us a moment here, you're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we are going to try to uh, try to get back our guest right now, Matthew Berger, who is one of the, uh, the main people behind organizing the Stand Up to Jewish Hate campaign. Maybe you've seen this on your social media, but it uses a very small blue square, basically the blue emoji on your phone to uh, raise awareness of anti-Semitism, to encourage people to, to speak out against it and to be supportive of, of members of the Jewish community. And the reason they use this tiny square is to represent the tiny percentage, 2.4% of the U.S. population that is actually of uh, Jewish heritage. So interesting conversation, Jeff. I don't know if you had mm -hmm. seen this. Uh, you had seen this before. I know they're they're putting a, an extraordinary amount of uh, effort into promoting this. You know, I had not been too familiar with it. One thing I can say, given what we were just talking about before Matt's call dropped, uh, you know, about how the media is covering anti-Semitism. I could just say it from one perspective, because I mentioned the Museum of Jewish Heritage. The reason I was there is that is one of my clients that I work with. Mm -hmm. And the frequency of phone calls that we get from media to interview Holocaust survivors about the state of anti-Semitism today in the last few years has increased substantially, Celeste. That speaks volumes. And I'm not just talking about media that are, you know, the Jewish media outlets. I'm talking about outlets such as Associated Press, New York Times. Large national outlets are constantly calling us NBC News at one point as well. So we, you know, I've noticed this significant increase in the number of calls that are coming in wanting to talk to people who've lived through the Holocaust cost about the climate in our country and in our world today, Celeste. I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff. I mean, I think that's something that we have seen a lot of people using this slogan or thinking this thought, you know, this idea that never again is now, that during the Holocaust, we looked at the world sort of turning its back on, if not even overt violence against Jewish people, but exclusion, uh, discrimination, segregation, uh, you know, th that this became part of the political conversation and that other countries who may not have been, uh, you know, so quite actively predisposed against Jewish people or the Jewish faith, you know, essentially turned their backs, try to minimize this, try to limit uh, that conversation, try to limit how seriously this was taken or sort of made it, you know, well, 
well, this is, this is uh, an internal problem. Uh, this is not really our problem. This is something that other people have to deal with. And this is not a big deal to us. Or, you know, maybe they sort of tacitly approved of what was going on. Maybe it fit in with their own belief system. And so that, that's something that we're hearing people talk about, Jeff. Yeah, and I know I don't know if we're going to have him back in time. So I know that you were going to ask him this, and so I'll just throw it out there to answer the question that he would have answered. If anyone is listening to this segment right now and wants to learn more about the organization that we're talking about, it's an easy website uh, to know. Uh, remember, StandUpToJewishHate.org. StandUpToJewishHate.org is the site. When as soon as you go to it, you'll see the blue square that Matt was talking about, Celeste. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things, uh, one of the things I was really interested in, in talking to Matt about is something, uh, that he had a lot of experience with as well, which is being, uh, being involved with Hillel, which is, you know, a very, uh, very well known campus organization, uh, for, for Jewish students and so on. And, you know, really interesting discussion, uh, just today, uh, what's going on at Harvard University, for example. And this mm. is not something that is limited to Harvard University, to be fair, but at Harvard, the, uh, president has had, um, been criticized pretty broadly for not putting out uh, a very strong statement condemning anti-Semitic activity on campus and just put one out under some pressure from alumni, from donors, uh, other supporters of the university. And then what we saw was a very strong pushback from something like 100 uh, professors at Harvard saying mm -hmm. that to be hypercritical of, of this kind of speech was actually having a chilling effect on the uh, intellectual freedoms of the university and uh, people's ability to express themselves and be comfortable doing that. So I think that, unfortunately, we did not get to ask, uh, we did not get to ask Matt that question and uh, really appreciate him coming on the program today. We'd love to pick up that conversation with him, uh, you know, at another time. But unfortunately, we are going to move right along. You are listening to Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston, that's me, and Jeff Simmons, that's him, on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So we did just have a great conversation for as long as it lasted with Matthew Berger from the Stand Up to Jewish Hate campaign. And next up, we are going to get a first-person report on what it was like to be there at this week's big march for Israel in Washington, D.C. You know, and a quick reminder before we get to that, it really only takes a minute to support the kind of free speech independent radio that you just do not get anywhere else. WBAI 99.5 FM. Well, we are your station. We're counting on you, our listeners, to stay on the air. So please, just take a few moments. You could do it during the show, but keep us on and listen to us. Or you could do it anytime. Go to WBAI.org, WBAI.org. And please, do this, contribute to keep this station on the air. In doing that, you are standing up for free speech radio. That's what WBAI.org is all about. Thank you for your support. We're going to take a very quick break before we chat with our next guest, and then we'll be right back. So let's take a listen to the wonderful voice of Ofra Haza. You are listening to WBAI New York.
Ofra Haza, the late golden-voiced Israeli artist, Imnin Alu. You may remember that one from the 80s. That is off her album, Yemenite Songs. Big fan of hers. You're listening to WBAI New York. This is Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. We're going to move right along to our next guest. You know, you mentioned the 80s, by the way, Celeste, and I'm thinking, well, I wasn't even born then. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. I I know, I know. Anyway, so let's get on with the next guest, Mark Katz. He was one of the thousands of people who traveled to Washington, D.C. this week to join that massive March for Israel. I'm sure you saw the footage of this. This was a peaceful rally in our nation's capital that featured a number of flags, incredible passion, lots of concern about the scourge of anti-Semitism in this country and beyond. So here is what one of the main stage speakers, Van Jones, had to say about his concerns about anti-Semitism and what Jewish families are going through through right now. Let's take a listen. And I don't want any rabbi tonight to have to go and buy an extra can of white paint just to be able to paint over a swastika on a synagogue tomorrow morning here in the United States. I don't want that. I don't want that. And I definitely don't want any Jewish daughter, which I just learned, to change her name in her rideshare app because she's afraid for her driver to know that she is Jewish. That should not be happening here. Mark Katz, I'd like to welcome you to Driving Forces and WBAI. Well, thank you for having me. So to start off, can you just briefly tell us a little more about yourself? You've done a lot through your career. I know you could, we could go on for some time about this, but just briefly let our listeners know a little more about yourself. Very briefly. In the abstract, I'm just a friendly neighborhood speechwriter and humorist and um, a creative content provider who works with clients to help them communicate in impactful and unorthodox, unorthodox ways. But in more practical terms, I'm a person who regularly gets off the phone and tries to figure out what I just said yes to. Uh, for example, I, when, I, when I said yes to coming on your program, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just one of the things that happens in the course of my day. Well, in fact, whenever Celeste makes requests, I never say no. You learn that quickly. <laughs> but what made you decide to attend the uh, the March for Israel rally? Why was this important for you to be there in person? Well, Jeff, you know, I'm, uh, first of all, you know, I'm not uh, an activist of any kind. I'm, I'm really, I'm a person, I have a lot of strongly held beliefs. But as an activist goes, I'm, I'm fairly passive. Um, my last, first, my last long bus ride I took was a 10th grade ski trip to Okemo. And I've not been to a large public rally since the last time the Yankees won the World Series. So it was unusual for me to kind of decide to, to get to do this, to wake up and to do this. But it was really more of a, uh, a response than a decision. Um, you know, the, the minute I heard about the rally, I, I knew I had to be there. And uh, I just felt this need. And, and over the course of the past month, um, I felt the need to be with fellow Jews um, to, to get support and to offer support. Um, and we, it's important. You know, I, I went to summer Jewish summer camp and, and here at the Hebrew school. And one of the words I remember is Hineni, which literally means here I am. Uh, but it's taken on a more existential meaning to me since then. You know, you really, you got to, you got, it just means you've got to show up when it counts. 
And this felt like one of those days when you had to show up. So there I went, although I don't know how to say there I went. <laughs> so Mark Katz, and I should say for the uh, the benefit of the listening public, we are not actually related as far as I know, Katz, as far as Katz I know, but um, I want to. You know, you have, you have the, the power of description. You've been, and you're very modest. You have been, uh, uh, you have worked for the New York Times in the past. Your work has been published time, the Washington Monthly. Uh, you have been a presidential speechwriter. We didn't quite get to that, but you have written speeches for, uh, people like Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Madeleine Albright. So you have the power of, uh, of description here. And I'm going to ask you, and a little bit louder for, uh, for everybody in the back, because we have your levels at max right now. Tell us what okay. it was like to be at this rally. What did it look like? What did it sound like? Who did you see? Who did you talk to? What did you hear? Oh, it was it was a circus in a lot of ways, uh, but it was defined by, I would say, a palpable sense of unity, you know, a sense of belonging. It felt like a pilgrimage of people get all these people getting off the bus from all these different places, people who just felt the need to be around one another. You know, Jews are not a naturally unified people. Celeste, maybe you know that old joke about the Jew who washed up on a desert island. He builds two synagogues, one to pray in and one he would not so much as step foot in, right? These are Jews. These are our people. But at this moment, you know, all that, I feel you could feel it erasing away, melting away. If you're a Jew, you're on the team, and we need you. And that was that was the feeling of it, you know. So I, I got uh, on a bus at 7 a.m. in downtown Brooklyn, it was a joint venture between the two synagogues on the same block. One was Orthodox, and one was my synagogue, the Reformed Synagogue. And the, Re- the observant Jews prayed in the back, and the Reformed Jews uh, slept up front. And uh, we made our way down I-95, and we were engaged in conversation. You know, reform- people who have different brands of Judaism meeting each other. I had a long conversation with the rabbi of the Orthodox Synagogue, um, and uh, the, at the rally, you could sense that it was also every kind of Jew you could imagine, you know, from, from the right wing to left wing to apolitical. I saw signs for LGBT Jews, dark Jews, light Jews, different languages, and they were all there because they just felt they couldn't imagine being anywhere else. You know, it was like a, like a Jewish-themed Woodstock. You just had to be there and say that you were there. We're talking to Mark Katz, former presidential speechwriter, communicator, uh, about his trip to the March for Israel in Washington, D.C. this week. You're listening to Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz Marston here with Jeff Simmons. And Mark, you know, we had a little, a couple of little clips uh, from uh, uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. We had a clip from Van Jones. But I was wondering, were there any speakers um, on the stage that you heard uh, at this rally that really had something to say that spoke to you personally? Anybody that stood out? for you and what did they have to say well i listened carefully to as best i could the sound system where i was wasn't fantastic but i listened carefully to the political leaders um and it was you know look they said all the all the things that that people what the crowd wanted to hear you know giving unqualified support for israel and unequivocal denunciations of anti-semitism and you know, it's important for Jews to hear that from non-Jews and from fellow Americans. 
Um, and it's, it, it can bring a lump to your throat. I mean, when I heard President Biden's speech, I was, you know, I gotta tell you, you know, I've, I've, I've cried so many times this past month. <laughs> and you just don't see it coming. Um, and, uh, it comes in waves. And, and to hear, even to hear the new Speaker of the House, I call him the Ayatollah of the House, but uh, that's me. Uh, but the Speaker of the House, whose politics, you know, I don't have a lot in common with, but I listened carefully for anything that I thought I might disagree with. I didn't hear a word uh, that I would disagree with. So, you know, I, I applaud him for that. Um, and and Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer. But that was the stuff the crowd really wanted to hear and it was easy to get, you know, those applause. And I've written speeches like that. The speeches that crowd needed to hear was from the members of the families of the hostages. I mean, just powerful, just giving voice to the anguish of having, you know, someone stolen from you and living in the slow motion nightmare of the last 40 days and nights as they have. You know, it, it, by the time they were done, they made me feel like I was awaiting the return of a member of my family, God forbid. <clears throat> and that's so, the stuff that stays with you. That's the stuff that stays with you. So, you know, what's, what stays with me as well is whenever one of these incidents happen, and I'm not talking about them in the least, but I'm talking about even anti-Semitic incidents here in New York City. You know, it, it just, it, it paints such a picture of, you know, of people feeling bold enough that they can do these things and say these things. And, you know, and, and here in New York City, we talk about, Celeste and I on the show often talk about uh, rise in crime rates and, you know, and public safety issues. Do you feel, especially after coming back home from uh, Washington after this rally, you come back here to New York City, do you feel, you know, sad. What like I want to? I'm really trying to get a sense of. Do you feel that it's we're living in a, a city where at any moment you could experience or witness someone experiencing anti-Semitism? Do you feel safe in this city right now? I'm really curious about how New Yorkers are feeling as well. I believe in New York. I feel safe here. Um, we are a highly pluralistic community. Um, and I, I feel safe. I saw a, um, uh, a, a parade of pro-Palestinian marchers walk by my home last week. I was amazed how long the line was. And it made me think that I need to do more work about understanding what compelled them to walk the streets of New York, uh, chanting their slogans. And, uh, and truth is, you know, I've been doing some of that. I am not someone who, who has... I have not done a lot of my homework, to be quite honest, about what I need to understand about my relationship to Israel and Zionism and uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and I've been reading up on it, you know, just, just trying to get up to speed. Um, uh, and, I, you know, the narratives that are most familiar to me are the Zionistic ones, and I, I am a Zionist. I believe is that Israel must exist. I believe that. But there's more than one narrative. There, this is a, a, a conflict of competing narratives. And, um, you know, I think the onus is on me and on a lot of people, on every person, to understand competing narratives. And it's on us to do it. I can't just come on a, sh a show or show up at a party and espouse 
you know, talking points from from uh, UJA or whoever provides them. I need to do the work of understanding, you know, what it means to be a Palestinian, what that what that has meant historically, you know, and and what their experience is like. Now, Hamas is another matter altogether. You know, that that is so far out of bounds to be a jihadist, to be someone who would negate the existence of Israel and, and engage in the kind of depravity that would get cut from a Terrence Tarantino movie. Uh, uh, I didn't get his name right. I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, yeah, beyond the pale and someone uh, I can't engage with. And I, I would fight to the end against anyone who wants to destroy me, my family, and my people. But the real conversation is to be had among the people who aren't captive to extremists. Um, and, you know, the, I, I, you know, I just believe that there is, a, there's, there is a world where there can be an Israel and a Palestinian people, a nation that are both success stories. You know, I've been to Israel only twice in my life. Um, I went a couple of years ago. I went when I was 16 years old on a teen tour when I was done with my Jewish summer camp. And I took my then 10-year-old son uh, and my wife went on a trip led by one of my good friends who's a, a, a wonderful and powerful and thoughtful rabbi in Rockland County where I grew up. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm proud of what Israel has done. I am proud to be a Jewish person who, who helped support and believe in Israel. Uh, but I, I also believe that, you know, in a world where the Palestinian people can also and should also have their own success story. So, um, you know, as you're speaking, you mentioned your son. I'm thinking of younger generations and generationally where we're seeing sympathies. You know, there was a poll out uh, that came out earlier today by Quinnipiac. And it had noted that and I'd love your thoughts on this, your reaction to this, that overall 54 percent of uh, people who were polled say their sympathies lie more with the Israelis, with while twenty four percent say their sympathies lie more with Palestinians. But here's the different uh, one category I want to mention: among voters eighteen to thirty four years old, a majority fifty two percent say their sympathies lie more with the Palestinians, while twenty nine percent say the Israelis. And that's a reversal from a month earlier, where forty one percent said the Israelis, and 26% said the Palestinians. I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, I'm only in charge of one kid, and he and I, my son Elias, talk about this. Um, and, uh, you know, he came home from school. Uh, we watched the news, and he says, I'm not sure how I feel about Israel, which shocked me. Um, and because of what he's been hearing at school, um, and he, he goes, you know, he goes to a school here in Brooklyn. It's a, it's a private school with, with, uh, you know, lots of great kids, but, um, uh, and we talked about, you know, I gave him, and uh, we've been engaging in conversation. We've been listening to pod. We just drove home from upstate and we had a podcast. Ezra Klein did a great podcast, um, with it, with two, um, scholars and journalists, both one from, you know, an Israeli background from the Hartman, the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel and another uh, uh, a, a Palestinian scholar who was thoughtful and we listened to them both. And it was quite honestly harder for me to listen to the Palestinian one, but I, I did. 
and and he did, and we both did. And you know, I, so as far as you know, I think kids can get confused about what is social justice and who's the oppressor, who's the oppressed. You know, I I come from it, it, the whole narrative starts is where you want to start when it, where you, when you when you want to start the clock. Right. You know, I can start the clock and the, the narrative that's most comforting and familiar to me can either start in during the Holocaust or, or 1948 in the aftermath of the Holocaust um, and or dating back to the destruction of the temple, the whole diaspora um, and the historical grasp of what it means for the Jews to be homeless for 2000 years and leading up to the Holocaust when the world, you know, made good on a promise to say, the Jewish people deserve a homeland. The Jewish people, you know, have, have been wonderful contribu- contributors to the, the human experience, and we need to preserve them. And this is what they need. And it is what we need. The whole and- idea of Israel is predicated on the idea of self-reliance. <clears throat> that we need not be, you know, dependent upon the strength or kindness of others to protect ourselves. And that is the powerful idea that I connect to, and I'm trying to connect my son to. And, you know, just one one more question for you, Mark, before we uh, unfortunately have to wrap up. And I could definitely talk about this more with you. And I think you're, you're saying really important things about at least listening to and considering uh, what, what people are saying, you know, ideas that may not have been uh, in your upbringing or your tradition, but that you're, you know, talking to people and listening to people. You know, just curious, as to, this is a question we've been grappling with on this program quite a bit, which is that... There are some, there are some circles in which criticizing Israel in any way is considered anti-Semitic. That this Israel is whatever you want to call it is a Jewish state and that there's just basically no way to be critical of the Israeli government or the Israeli military without being an anti-Semite. And some people say, no, in fact, you can separate those things out. You can separate out criticizing a war or criticizing a government from hatred of Jewish people. And, uh, you know, just having been around a lot of people who I'm sure had very diverse opinions on this, just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I am, you know, uh, I, you can absolutely criticize the government of Israel. You can absolutely, uh, without being anti-Semitic. To me, I draw the line on people who uh, question the right of Israel to exist. That is the barrier, the line that, to me, can't be crossed. They are fighting words. They elicit a visceral response from me. So I got, I'm no fan of Bibi. Uh, I don't generally align with extremists of any kind. Um, but this is the time, this, this, and this rally was the time for all Jews to say, we, we need to be Jewish together. We need to be one people. Um, and that's why I got on that bus and, and spent eight hours in the bus and four hours in the mall, and I'd do it again. And I hope, you Mark, know, uh, and I, yes. We, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Thank you for sharing your experiences, uh, this week in Washington, D.C. at the March for Israel. And we would, uh, love to have you back sometime so we can, we can talk about this and other things, uh, much more. Yeah, if I figure out all these complicated issues, uh, when I come back from Oslo to accept my uh, Nobel Peace Prize, I will definitely put you on my press tour. 
Okay, excellent. And I hope that we are first on the list. <laughs> thank you for, Mark thank Katz, you for having thank me. Thank you so much for, for being with us here today on Driving Forces on WBAI. Thank you. So we want to thank our special guests today, Matthew Berger and Mark Katz. We want to thank our engineer, Reggie Johnson. And of course, you, our listeners, and our supporters. Jeff, what do we have coming up for next week? Oh, there's so much going on, Celeste. It is Thanksgiving week. So first, something we touched on very briefly at the top of the show about uh, what's going on with Mayor Adams, not just about the investigation into his fundraising uh, during his campaign, but also the uh, budget uh, announcement he made today about uh, major cuts to keep this ba uh, budget balanced. Well, this Sunday on City Watch, I will be solo hosting at 8 a.m. My first guest is going to be New York State Senator Jessica Ramos. She is going to weigh in on how the mayor has handled the migrant crisis, but also we're going to talk about her political future because she's one of the names being bandied about as a potential mayoral challenger. Then during the second half of the show, we'll be joined by former New York City controller Scott Stringer to discuss the mayor's handling of asylum seekers and, of course, the budget as the former city controller. He definitely knows how money moves around in this city. Then next Thursday, Thanksgiving, this is going to be a special show. We're going to be on for two hours next week, four o'clock to six o'clock. And, uh, you know, I was wondering what to do on this show, and I wanted to do something a bit differently because for many people, Thanksgiving is a time for family and friends to get together. But for many people, there'll be empty seats at the table. They've lost loved ones over this last year. So what I've done is I have a, uh, a professor from Columbia University, Celeste, who's going to join us to talk about the, the complexities of, uh, or I'm sorry, about coexisting with grief during the holidays. But then throughout the show, we're going to be joined by people who are going to share their memories of loved ones. A woman who recently lost her nine-year-old son, another who lost her father. And, and mostly during the show, I'm carving out a lot of time for you, our listeners, to call in and share your stories about loved ones. And it can, it can also be, you know, it could also be a someone that has meant something to you. Like we'll be talking a little about Tony Bennett, for instance, uh, and his impact uh, as well. So I really would love for you to make a point of keeping WBAI on during Thanksgiving, especially from four to six when I'll be joining you uh, here on Driving Forces. Thanks so much, Jeff. That is a beautiful, beautiful program. Looking forward to it. Be sure to tune in, everyone. This has been Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. If you missed any part of this show, you can find us on Apple, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Be kind, be safe, and be brave. See you on the radio.